0: You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. At the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in family and local history from New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. No mai haere mai. Today's talk is presented by Robert Bartholomew, who discusses the research process behind his recently published book, No Māori Allowed. The book discusses the segregation of Māori, which took place in the town of Pukukaui, in the Auckland region, between the
1: 1920s and 1960s. Tenatato katoa. You'll notice, uh, although it's covered right now, the word Māori does not have a makron. And um, I've done that because I'm trying to hold true to the period that I'm talking about because it didn't have it during that period. Also, between 1925 and 1950, the experiences in places like Pukekohe were quite more hardcore than, say, from the 50s into the early 60s. So there is a difference there. For me, the great irony in giving a presentation like this is here's some guy with an American accent who can't even properly pronounce the word Maori? I've been trying, who's lecturing Kiwis on race relations. <laughs> I'm not here to lecture. I'm here to present information, and I genuinely want two-way communication. Two monologues don't make a dialogue. I thought to myself, What's the best way to briefly introduce myself? Because you should know a little background information about any author. I am from New York, which means I grew up on a dairy farm. That's my hometown of Whitehall, New York, not far from the Canadian border. Um, There's maybe 1,500, 2,000 people there. It's all farms and farmers. And that's who I am. If people ask who I am, At heart, at core, I'm a farmer. I grew up shoveling cow manure, and I'll always be a farmer. A few things about myself. I've lived with the Rungus people on the island of Borneo. I lived in the Tanami Desert of Central Australia for quite a while with uh, indigenous people there. I've written a number of books. This encyclopedia took about 10 years to write. It's on fads, crazes. Uh, Manias, cults, riots, scares, panics, things like that. I've also written a book on media-driven panics and hoaxes. I do a lot of research into pseudoscience, and I've written a book that looks at the evidence for haunted houses, which turned out to be, when you look at the evidence, the evidence against haunted houses, because the evidence wasn't there. I've also written a book on America's Loch Ness Monster, the Lake Champlain Monster, I'm Not a Believer, I Need to See the Dead Carcass, a book on critical thinking that's used in some high schools in the United States, and one of the more recent books I've written, which is on the demonization of immigrants in the United States. Now, in terms of the segregation in Pukekohe, let me just give you a brief, overview of what happened between 1925 and 1962 most barbers in pukakoe in south auckland wouldn't cut maori hair there was one barber who had a special maori only chair so as not to offend the european customers at the strand theater maori were not allowed upstairs And downstairs, they segregated them, again, so as not to offend the European customers. During most of the segregation era, there was just one bar in town that would serve Maori. And at one point, at about the middle of the day, the Maori women were escorted out to a field next to the bar, and they brought the alcohol out to them there, and they would continued drinking in the afternoon and into the nighttime. Probably not a good combination. For much of this period, most taxi drivers wouldn't serve Maori. Some would, and they catered specifically for that trade, and they would give them credit. The bus from Pukekohe to Auckland and back, if a European got on and the bus was full, then the Maori had to stand. And if you didn't stand, you got yelled at. There was no sign, but there, it was no uncertain terms. Everyone knew what was going on. From at least 1945, the school in Pukekohe had segregated toilets. There was no sign. They had a whole monitor. And if you went into the wrong toilet, you got hit with a strap or a belt, depending on the person that I've talked to. The swimming baths, Monday through Thursday, Maori were not allowed in. It was only European and Asian. On Friday, they let the Maori into the swimming baths just before they changed the dirty water. In December of 1937, four different government departments sent people down to Pukekohe because they'd heard different stories and they wanted to find out what was going on firsthand. And they reported back that, first, the renting in town, that there was an unwritten rule that you don't rent to Maori. As a result, most of them were living on the market gardens in shacks, huts, hovels, converted manure sheds. Some buildings that had sides of them with stacked up benzene cans, sutured together burlap bags. That was in December of 1937. No indoor plumbing, no uh, indoor toilets, no opportunity to shower, women giving birth on dirt floors. The second thing they reported was when they went to the school to check on the Maori at the school, In 1937, not a single Maori was there the days they visited. Most of them were up on the market gardens working with their parents. Now, it was against the law. You had to go to school. But people turned a blind eye. And it worked out well for some people in the community. But to me, that's a tragedy. Because to me, some people had written Maori off because you need your education. For your future the third thing they reported and this is in the government report and this is firsthand that not a single business in town in december of 1937 let Maori use their public toilets so the public amenities like the telephone now in 1938 they came in with a Maori toilet facility by the park But that went from at least December of 1937 into the early 50s, because there were some remarks in the early 50s by the mayor about, well, of course, we don't still let Mulry use the public toilets. Um, That's a bit too much at this point. That was in 1952, I believe. As a result of this, you had deaths. People died on the market gardens from diphtheria. They died of measles. They died of whooping cough. They died of tuberculosis in tremendous numbers. I'll give you an example. In 1938, in a relatively small community in New Zealand, Pukakoe, with no more than a few hundred Maori in population, 30 Maori died that year from diseases that were directly linked to their housing. 29 of them were infants and children aged 14 and under. I'm going to say that again. In 1938, 30 mulri died as a result of their housing. 29 of them were aged 14 and under. Why do I get that category? It's a census category. And to me, as I was writing this book, I kept thinking to myself and talking to other history teachers. And nobody seemed to know anything about it. And I'm thinking to myself, Why isn't this taught in schools? This should be up there with Gallipoli. It should be up there with Passchendaele, with the Dawn Raids, with Bastion Point, with Ihumatau. But people don't know about it. And to me, that's the tragedy. So then I went looking. And I found information in the archives. I have to say, the librarians at this library and around New Zealand and the archivists were spectacular. I could not have done this without their help. And one of the first things I did, I said, you can't beat local knowledge. So I sent emails to every known historian in the Franklin region. I got one response. And then I sent them again, and the same person responded back to me. To me, that was so frustrating. And I simply said that I was doing a history of the, of the segregation, and you can't beat local knowledge. I didn't say I was an American. Uh, and that I, I, I would love to be able to meet up with them or to get some information from them. And that was really unfortunate. That was a real roadblock. So I went to the archives. The archives here, the archives in Wellington, the council archives, and after that, then I went and started interviewing Maori in the Pukekohe area. And to a person, they all wanted the story told. And to me, it's such a powerful story. It resonates to me because I grew up on a farm. And I know the value of land to people. And I know some of the history now, which I didn't know before, about how uh, so many Maori lost their land. And once I finally got the material together to publish it, I approached every commercial publisher in this country. They all said no. The only publisher that expressed interest was Auckland University Press, to which I'm grateful for. But there was a stipulation. And that stipulation was that it would have to be significantly rewritten because as it was in its present form, which is the book you see today, it was too much a book of Maori advocacy and voice to teachers, and not enough of a, quote, real history. And now I published 17 books prior to that. That really helped me because it gave me motivation. And I said, I'm going to publish it myself. Because anything other than that, because if I end up doing that, I'm selling myself out. I'm censoring the material. I'm going to do it exactly the way I think it should be. And that's what I did. Other areas of segregation that went on, some businesses refused to serve Maori. Um, Most of them made them feel uncomfortable because You have to realize it was against the law to overtly not serve people. But that becomes very interesting. At one point, there was no hairdresser in town that would serve Mulry, And they had a notice, not a sign, but a notice in their window that said, we don't serve brown skin customers. This affected all aspects of people's lives. Banks would not loan money. Stores refuse to give them credit. You had from 1952 to 1964, Pukakoe was the site of the only racially segregated school in New Zealand. I would love to show you another photo. I don't have permission to do so. That's in the archives. That shows. Now, this is the photo you usually see of the school. There's another photo from about 1956, and that field there has vegetables, looks like potatoes, going right up to within probably a foot of the school. And it's the school is just surrounded by vegetables and people out there producing the vegetables. Uh, there is evidence from the class roles that before the Mallory-only school, when they had the mixed school, that they had roles for certain classrooms that were all Maori in that classroom, which is suspicious because it suggests to me that they had some type of segregation going on before then. And I want to thank Bruce Ringer from Auckland South Libraries who pointed that out to me. Um, There was considerable bullying and teasing that went on from the Maori who I interviewed in Pukekohe. The N-word was commonly used as was the word Mori bug. People ask me, why didn't they stand up for themselves? Why didn't they fight the segregation? Why didn't they file police reports or have organized protests? And that's simple. Here's a photo from about 1950 from I believe it's the Star. A reporter went down to Pukekohe, and he took pictures of some Maori in front of, if you want to call them houses. About that same time, there was a woman who I interviewed, said that her sister had her picture taken in front of her house. And the person that owned the house was furious, and he kicked them out of the house because it made him look bad. If you complained, you could lose your housing. Now, in the end, they refused to move because they had nowhere to go and they ended up staying. But that was the problem. If you did complain about anything, they could simply kick you out of your accommodation. And more toward this point at the Strand Theater, they had people who did stand up. In 1933, there was an Indian gentleman who refused to move from his seat, downstairs, in the Strand. The owner of the Strand, Brian Blenner Hassett, got a friend of his who was a fireman, and they tried to pull him out physically from the seat when he wouldn't move. And he took him to court, and he won. They could do that. Mowry could not do that without the risk of losing their housing. I thought it was interesting, in one of the news reports, because this was a person of European descent that was being accused of doing this. They said it wasn't really an assault. It was a technical assault. Um, He technically assaulted him. For me, an assault is an assault. Now, you also had this going on nationally as well. And what was interesting, there was an American student from Hawaii that came to New Zealand in around 1960. And he was in Hamilton. And he went to try on some pants. And at several shops, they refused to let him try on pants because they thought he was Maori. And he filed a complaint with Maori Affairs, so it got recorded. So this was going on, but usually complaints were not filed. And there are so many stories that would have been lost because of that. On K Road in Auckland, shop signs read, no credit for Maori. Councils would jack up prices for state houses because they wanted to keep neighborhoods white. There were official policies. BNZ Bank. There was a Maori gentleman from Huntley that walked into BNZ Bank in 1955, and he asked for a job. And they said, oh, sorry, um, you're Maori. We're not going to hire you. And he, he filed a complaint. I think it was with the Human Rights Commission. And they ended up talking to BNZ Bank. And they found out that BNZ Bank at the time had two employees in their entire system who were Maori. And they were hesitant to put them on the front desk. A lot of businesses were. They didn't want them uh, where they were interacting with the public because of the stigma at the time. These are some other examples. So there certainly would have been shops that would not have served Maori at the time. To me, one of the interesting things is how history gets lost. Where are the pictures of these things? Maybe people are embarrassed about it. Um, But it's very difficult to get actual photos of signs from that period. This was really interesting. Uh, Judith McDonald, Office of Race Relations, she talked about how Maori were typically scapegoated for their problems, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, because they were often seen at the time as being very dirty and living in dirty, run-down uh, accommodation. But there was a lot of bias at the time, and those were the properties that were just being rented to Maori. So you see them in those properties and you make that association, but those are the only properties that they were being rented to. And that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. So I wanted to read a brief statement. I just want to get it right and be precise here. Um, in writing this book, I have received overwhelming support from the Maori and Pakia community. I have also received abuse online. I have been called the A word, the B word, the C word, the D word, and the F word. I have been called a Pakia oppressor for writing Maori history without permission. I have been told that the book is a waste of time because nobody cares about the story and I have been told to go back to America. I am now a proud New Zealand citizen, and I'm not going anywhere. I love this country. It is a great country, but it's not perfect. I believe that the vast majority of people in this country are tolerant, fair-minded people who celebrate diversity and respect cultural differences. But in any country, there's always going to be a small number of intolerant people. Edmund Burke once said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I believe that it's time, that it's time to speak up about the taboo of racism in New Zealand. A taboo that says if you talk about it, that you're disloyal, or you're a troublemaker. You know there's a problem when you're not allowed to speak at venues because some people are afraid audience members could be offended. Something is seriously wrong when telling the truth is seen as a controversial act. I am just a messenger who has lit a small fire. It is my hope. That Maori and Pakia alike will take that fire and spread it. The recent history of racism against Maori has been neglected in our schools for too long. Maori lag behind non-Maori in every major social indicator. not because they're lazy, not because they want something for nothing or a land grab. No, they lag behind because they had their land taken from them, and they have yet to recover. That is why the story of racial segregation is so important and so powerful, because it speaks to today. It's been said that history repeats itself. I don't believe that. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. We need to keep reminding ourselves that race is a myth, and that we we have more similarities than we have differences, that we are all part of one race, the same race, the human race. And we all need to respect one another and acknowledge past wrongs as part of the process of healing for this country. Let me give you an example. People criticize Maori disadvantage. Oh, they're getting this, they're getting scholarships. The one thing that stood out to me was reading this. I didn't believe it. And then I did some research. 1971 153 Maori undergraduates in New Zealand and 27,898 non Maori. That's unbelievable. And to me, that brings home the disadvantage more than anything else. That is why they need some help in terms of fair treaty settlements, in my view, and scholarships. Not a handout, but a hand up to help to try to level the playing field and overcome what is just so difficult to overcome. A number of years ago, an American anthropologist was living with a group of pygmies in the Congo. And they looked out onto this plain, and there was this vast cloud of dust. And the pygmy got very excited, and he started pointing, and he said, giant dragonflies, giant dragonflies. As the dust cloud got closer, the anthropologist could make out the outline of stampeding elephants. And he said, those aren't dragonflies, those are elephants. To which the pygmy replied, the giant dragonflies, they've turned into elephants. Human beings have a remarkable propensity for self-deception. Let me give you an example of that. when. My book came out in March. Somebody posted on Facebook one of the images from my book. This 1955 Brittle From the previous year, a tradition had developed during capping day activities for engineering students at Auckland University to dress up like Maori. Uh, some of them had spears. They would paint things on their faces. This is pretty tame here. They would paint obscenities on their bare chests. And they made a comment because somebody had made a uh, reference to the book and that this was in here and oh, that was bad. And they said, oh, it was just a small group of jokers from the engineering department. Nobody took them seriously. We respected Maori culture back then. No, they didn't. They didn't respect Maori culture back then. If you go back, people are smiling in the background. That's revisionist history. There was a lot of disrespect going on for the culture. And to me, it shows the widespread disdain for Maori culture back then. And if you know the story, the Haka party incident in 1979, when Hani Harawira's wife confronted them, it was still going on. 10 years prior to that Hakka party incident, engineering students doing a mock Hakka on the campus, Mallory had written to the engineering department, asked them very nicely, please don't do this. This is very offensive to us and our ancestors. And they did it anyway. And not only did they do it, it was really offensively done. If you've seen some of the images from 1979 with obscenities. There's a long tradition of capping activities with students at Auckland University. And this is from the early part of the century. A person is dressed up in downtown Auckland like a French clown. It's a famous clown from the the time. And the other person is dressed up like a military police officer. Here's another one from 1923, dressing in blackface. Now, the person has a scarf underneath their face. And the other person has blackface like a gollywog doll there. To me, it shows just the lack of sensitivity to issues that were going on at the time. And if that isn't a breach of sensitivity, then that certainly is. Downtown Auckland, 1923. Now, I don't believe those are Klan members. Those are university students dressed up as KKK members. But KKK in the United States? lynched over 4,000 people. They lynched young girls and boys as well. They did horrific things. To me, again, this shows the insensitivity in our past that should be acknowledged and shouldn't be censored from our history books. People's Voice newspaper, February of 1952. Of course, this would have been illegal. They put it up. No native served in this bar. Now, they made a reference in here to the, I believe it was the previous year when a Maori rugby team was refused service at another um, hotel. Did I say bar? Hotel. And um, again, these are examples. Of breaches of conduct, and it also reflects some portions of society at the time. This is in the archives from the Heritage Collection. It says, Multicultural Classroom, Pukakoe Hill School, 1987. That's fantastic. Thirty years earlier, they had segregated toilets. I think. If you want to show that image, that's fantastic, what we should aspire to be, where we want to be. And whoever put that image in there, I think, wanted that image in there for a reason. So that's fantastic. But we should also remember that they had segregated toilets, and they had segregated swimming baths, and they had the N-word, freely used.
2: deal with some
1: questions
3: in the room now. To many Māori people, um, your story about Kohi is not unknown. Uh, for myself personally, my father went to Weasley College in the 50s and we knew from an early age that uh, he told stories that uh, when they would go to the, the local cinema that Māori um, were not allowed to, to sit at the top. Now because he went to Weasley College and in those days quite different from what was, there was very few Pacific students there then. It was primarily Māori and a few Pakia students. Because they went to a private school, the manager said to them, well, that's fine. Um, you, know, you can go, up, go upstairs, you can sit upstairs because you're privileged. Um, the boys responded to that and refused to go upstairs and sit there. But um, those stories of not being able to go to the bar are very, are very well known and that Pukekoi always had a notorious reputation. Um, In in my experience, I I travelled a lot as a young person going around Māori communities, because the question I have to you is, in in your research, it's why. Why particular communities were probably worse than other communities. In my experience, travelling around filming Māori people uh, in the 80s and 90s, you would go to certain areas and immediately pick up from the Māori community a lot hardened and resentment of the other pākeh community. Some communities very, very intermixed and not so much resentment. Other Māori communities, I suspect, Pukukōhe would be the same. Um, the Māori had very poor um, perceptions of the Pākehā community, very poor relationships. In areas where they're predominantly Māori, if you went to, say, the Tuhoi East Coast, the Western Hokianga, because Māori was so predominant there, you found often the, the, the relationships were better because Māori people were empowered more and had much more say in their local communities. It seemed to me travelling around, that I noticed the areas I personally felt the resentments were most, were areas like Kui, areas like southern Taranaki, areas like Matamata through to Tauranga. That's where I found Māori particularly, very divisive between the Māori and Pā communities. And if you look historically at that, a lot of those areas were Ki areas, where they had a very troubled history of land grabs, of Māori people being treated very, very poorly by the colonial government. And I, I always felt that there was a quite direct connection, historically, between the very, um, some areas did not suffer raupatu as, say, the Taranaki people, the Waikato people, parts of Ngāpui, etc. And I always felt there was a correlation between that. It seemed that areas that had really suffered in some ways more severe land grabs. That, that resentment was there. And in a way, um, you saw the Pākehā attitude to Māori was very poor as well as a result. Uh, did you, is there anything in your findings around suggesting, why Pukukue? Because it is, no doubt, that's probably the most notorious of all the towns. I think Matamata yeah. wasn't too flashy. either. Well,
1: you but know, I've tried to not overstep my bounds in terms of saying things that I, I'm not sure about. Um, but of course, you had the, um, that uh, stockade incident at the church from the 1870s. Um, and in fact, I don't want to keep calling him out, but uh, Bruce Ringer did some interesting research on that that suggests that it was uh, exaggerated in terms of the, the battle that took place. And um, there were certainly some hard feelings there in the community over that. Um, and it does look like um, that incident was quite glorified um, from the European perspective. Well,
3: it
1: wasn't the pathway, not on the path from through to Yeah, 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 absolutely. No, what you what you've said there makes a lot of sense. Um, that's why, you know, I would have loved to have uh, written the book with uh, with a historian. But what I can say is what I have done, I am confident that what I have written about is, is accurate. But because I don't have the historical depth of knowledge that a historian would have. Um, There are insights like that that I haven't really gone into. I've really focused on Pukakoe and then the segregation era in general, uh, with a lot of help from the government documents from around 1960, 61. There's one confidential document in particular that was very, very helpful. Um, But thank you so much for that. That's really interesting.
2: When writing this book, Do you feel like there was adequate engagement and consultation with local iwi? And do you think that their perspectives have been accurately represented? And has this been published with iwi support?
1: Um, no. And let me tell you what, well, let me tell you what I did. Um, I went and collected the documents. Then I went and interviewed the Māori in the Pukekohe area. To a person, they, they all knew what I was doing. And they all wanted the story told. So I wrote the story. Um, I'm not, I'm pretty ignorant in terms of, and maybe I can get away with certain things because I have an accent, but I'm not really familiar with that aspect of New Zealand culture, about going to the Iwi and ask permission. But I did tell the people there what I was doing. Whether you accept this or not, I have strong feelings about that. I believe that history is what happens. And nobody owns history. I believe that history is something that happens, and we try to record it to the best of our ability. And, um, but I will tell you this. If anybody had come up to me and said, Robert, this is really bringing back bad memories. And some people did say that, but they wanted me to do it. If they said, this is bringing back bad memories. I don't want you to write this. I doubt that I would have written it. But they all wanted me to write it. And so now for the second book, not the one for the uh, schools, but the second um, Momori Allowed too, I can't claim that I don't know any better, because people have told me. So now I went to the Natai Tama Oho office and I've met with them, and I've told them what I'm doing, and I've asked for their help and their permission. And if they say no, then I won't do it. But if they think it's helpful and useful, then I'll do it. I'm not going to do something against somebody's will. Although, and I feel strongly about this as an outsider, like I think somebody, I don't think anybody owns history. History are things that happen. The problem has been in the past, the people that have owned the history, history is written by the winners, right? And the winners have been the Pacquia. And then they've written twisted histories, from what I can see. I mean, not quite accurate. Um, people might feel upset about that, but I, I just feel that I don't think anybody owns history. But I'm not going to go and do somebody's family history. I mean, that's your history your family history, your micro history. Your, but I mean, in terms of the broad stroke events that have happened, I think that belongs to everybody. Um, but again, I'm not going to do it if they don't want me to do it. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm just being honest. And I think some people might have a problem with that. I've gotten some emails from people that seem to have a problem with that and say that I have no right to write on somebody else's history. I, I don't agree. I don't think you own a history. I don't think Europeans own their history. I think anybody can write on a history. However, I'm not going to go into somebody's community and start interviewing people if they don't want me there. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. But again, everybody that I interviewed in Pukekohe wanted me to, to do the book. They knew what I was doing, and they gave interviews freely to me.
2: Um, Tiffany, okay. Tiffany says, why do you think New Zealanders look past this racist history? and pretend they're not racist when these incidents, incidents make it clear that there is a history of institutional racism here. Um, what you outlined very much mirrors a Jim Crow America.
1: Yeah, I, Thank you so much. I just think that um, most Kiwis today uh, wouldn't consider themselves racist. I think they're, they're sensitive, but there is a group, there is a certain percentage that are bigoted, that are narrow-minded, and um, how do you weed that out? You weed it out from year four and five in school, and you address it there. Because kids are mirroring what their parents are saying so often. Um, I just think it begins with education, and it ends with education. You know, we, we, and, we're, and we're always learning. I mean, I don't know everything. Um, my favorite saying, um, I never call myself doctor. I, I, um, if I thought I was smarter than anybody else in the room, I would. My favorite saying is, if I am nothing without a PhD, then I, I'm nothing with one. I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a person trying to write a history. Um, because I feel I taught history at our school for several years. And every year, it's the same thing, Montgomery bus boycott. 1955, 1956, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, great. But I'm in New Zealand. I'd love to teach about Pukekohe and the racial segregation era and I think we can do that and then say look how far we've come and we were not we're not, we're not painting everybody out to be racist, but um, this did happen we should acknowledge it and learn lessons from the past
4: uh, Hello, um, I had a quick question because you mentioned um, how far New Zealand has come, I'm clearly not born here. I was also born in the US, born in Philadelphia, yep. um, but I moved here from Berlin, which was super diverse, which I experienced.
1: Could I ask of, how long you've been
4: here for? Uh, three years. Okay. Yeah, um, and I actually get a lot of prejudicial comments to me here, a lot of racism that I experience here being a um, commercial business owner and private label owner. Um, I, re- I receive that racism from different forms. It's not just Pacquiao or Eurocentric, New Zealand people. I get a lot of racism. Actually, I get here the most has been from Maori people.
1: So, so what would be an example?
4: On my third day moving here, I was called the N-word to my face by a Maori guy. And the, my fifth day living here, walking through Brittle Mart, I was called the C-word from a Eurocentric Kiwi guy. So my comment to you would be, you're saying something that was very long ago, something that's actually here and pressing is something here. There's six schools here. Um, that don't allow people to have Afro hair, locks, or braids. Okay. And I re- remember you mentioning, not want to mention the school, but I will, because I'm not the book writer, but Auckland Grammar is one of those. And they don't allow you to have Afro hair, braids, or locks, because they believe that it looks unprofessional otherwise. Where does that leave Pacifica people or African or Caribbean people that have naturally curly hair, such yep. as myself? And um, I think that it speaks to A lot of people don't like being called what they are or prejudices or biases that they do hold. And I think it's easy for people to point a finger. So I think it's really awesome that you were able to write this book. But I think there is a lot of things that Kiwis do hold on to. So maybe the, you know, it's illegal. You were saying it wasn't illegal, but it's still legal here to tell people, like for myself to find where to get my hair. People tell me, oh, we don't do hair like yours. I still experience that here in Auckland or maybe you should go to K Road. There's an African shop there. I've heard that all the time. So that's something. And then the other point I wanted to ask you about, being from the States, how do you feel about 100% Kiwi owned? This is a comment that I'm asking because I'm a business owner and I would never put on any of my businesses here, 100% African-American owned. I've never been in a Can I ask you a question?
1: Are are you a New Zealand citizen now?
4: No, not, no,
1: I'm not. OK, because that'd be a great comeback. Oh, I'm a Kiwi, right? Because we're all, because there's Kiwi isn't a color. Kiwi isn't a ethnic group, is it? Um, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Yeah. And I, I would guess, based on my 10 years here, that everybody in this room, most people at least, would feel aghast by what happened to you. I'm really sorry that that happened. Um, but that does speak to the need, I think, to, And I've noticed at some schools that it's still the the N-word is still commonly used. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's something we need to address and and learn about. Um, And it's all it's all different ethnic backgrounds that I mean, like starting in year four or five. Um, But that's really interesting. And I took some notes there as well, as Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Thank you so much for that. What was your uh, the Kiwi own thing?
4: Oh, the, ki- the Kiwi-owned. I was asking about that because I've never... Usually when that's mentioned, because people tell me Kiwi, and normally when people say Kiwi, they're referring to Euro Kiwis. And then people say Kiwi or Maori. So when people say that on their buildings, when they say 100% Kiwi-owned, it's never usually owned by a Pacifica-born or Maori um, Kiwi. It's normally a Euro Kiwi that's putting it, and I want to know what would your well, Teach. I
1: saw a lot of that when I used to live. I'm sorry, in Australia, <laughs> I lived in Australia for a number of years, and uh, you saw Australian-owned or 100% Australian-owned. That was a big thing, uh, and of course, with with Donald Trump in America, you know, the big thing is now American-owned, right? It's all American. Um, yeah, I just think that um, we're all in this together with different ethnic groups and backgrounds and um, cultural diversity. Um, I just think it's fantastic the culture. Look, I'm, I'm looking out here today, um, and the cultural diversity I see, I think it's fantastic, and I think that's the future. I think, um, yeah, I don't know what my opinion on it is, other than I don't like American-owned or America first. I think you know we live in a global community today, and we need to get along with everybody and, and try to better understand each other. I'm so thankful for your comments there. That, that's that really contributes to the debate, I think, discussion. And I'll follow up on some of that as well. Um, I appreciate that, yep.
0: You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website.